Epilogue. A friend of mine told me recently I must be careful not to play the victim, but rather should be truthful about everything within this book and accept the blame I am due. I agree with him, and his words have weighed heavily on the last few pages, mostly within this epilogue. I feel like a victim at times. In fact, most of the time when I think of what happened to me both then and now, victim feels like a very accurate word to describe it all. At the same time, if there is a point to this book I want to drive home most, it's the idea that the term victim, the very paradigm of being a victim, must be reevaluated. When I think of every story, every tale, every movie and book and artwork dedicated to the idea of victimization of children, their exploitation as objects of sexuality, the stories always unfold the same way, with a few small exceptions. The story ends on the child's rescue, the curtains go down as the young child is saved, and the horrible, monstrous perpetrator is taken away in handcuffs, and, possibly, the hero of the story is rewarded for his efforts. But then we fade to black, and the audience goes home, or closes the book, or turns off the movie, and the story's over for them. This book is dedicated to the idea that the story didn't end for me, and it doesn't end for those who, like me, faced abuse firsthand as a child. It never ended for any of us. While the reader may close the book or turn off the movie, the child in the story never got that chance, and the story you just read is played on a loop endlessly in their minds, and they can never escape it. The worst part of being a victim of these events is that if it never ends, what does it mean for us as adults? As we grow and mature and begin to build our life atop a foundation of lies and deceit and broken moments no one ever cleaned up. And then, as adults, our world is somehow marred and broken and different from those around us, and we don't know how to change that. We're faced with loneliness and shame, and we have nowhere to direct those thoughts except inward. We're looked at as different or bad or wrong. We have thoughts that scare us or fantasies that attract us to things we never, not in our wildest dreams, would want to see happen to anyone, yet we can't turn from them. They threaten our relationships, they hurt our jobs, they destroy our friendships, and yet despite all of this, we can't avoid the reality of who we are and who we've become. The idea that abuse affects who we will become is well documented today, and yet still society avoids the truth of it. Nothing speaks to the shame we experience and feel like the way society speaks of and handles sexual abuse. To say there's a difference between society's dealings with children who are abused and adults who were abused is an understatement. The CDC did a study in the mid-90s that's still used to this day. The study was the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, in which a test or monitoring was conducted to determine a score for any individual later in life based on the severity of their abuse as a child. They segmented the test into abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. All three of these factors play a role in the way a child develops into an adult. The CDC found that the higher the score of this test for any given adult, the more likely they were to experience PTSD within their lives. But didn't we already know that? Didn't we know that PTSD exists for people who go through terrible events in their lives? For years, there was a fight to recognize the impact of warfare on soldiers returning home. The right type of medical and psychiatric treatments were encouraged for returning soldiers, as well as soldiers still enlisted, to be sure they didn't face too much stress after their return and to be sure they would not be a danger to themselves or others. PTSD is not an old disease, and treatment still being developed 
It was originally coined in the 70s during the Vietnam era, but truly became a dominant diagnosis in the 80s. It wasn't until only recently that PTSD was determined to be linked to non-military events and truly associated with all forms of trauma. But still, to this day, ask anyone to define the term and you will be given answers that almost always relate to our heroes in the armed forces. This is unfortunate. It closes our mind to the truth of the disease. The same symptoms that result from a soldier's PTSD are the symptoms that the CDC claim exist for abuse survivors. Anxiety, depression, mania, compulsion, alcoholism, addiction, substance abuse, suicide ideation, and social withdrawal. The truth of PTSD is that those who suffer from it are guilty of carrying their damaged selves into the real world where there's no place for them. But I ask, whose fault is that? Is it the soldier's fault that he or she brought back their pain from the war with them? Is it their fault that they now face these terrible symptoms because of their time in battle? Can we hold their actions against them once they return? The answer is yes and no. Much like myself, the results and impact of PTSD on the survivor as well as the soldier are hours to manage and hours alone. No one else can manage them for us. They can only help carry the burden, but the guilt we face is not that of who we are or what we were made into, but instead we face the guilt of our self-deceit. We face the guilt of not choosing to act when we know, because we do know, that something has gone wrong within us. That is our guilt, and we must admit that guilt in order to move forward. Yet, ask yourself a question. Which of these two events is it easier to admit to and seek help for? The idea that you are a returning soldier who has saved lives and served your country and is a hero, or admitting that you were savagely and brutally raped as a child? I am not trying to insinuate anything whatsoever about our armed forces, and if I am, it's that they are heroes who deserve our respect and admiration and the quality of treatment they receive after their service for us is not nearly what they deserve. I'm simply trying to put into perspective that we have hidden the reality of the adult abuse survivor by always ending the story, by lowering the curtain when the child is rescued, without ever admitting that for them, the story is just beginning. Several months after first seeing Chad and shortly after my ultimate confrontation with my demon, when things had begun to change in my mind and the way that I saw and felt things had subtly shifted, I told Chad I needed to speak to others like me. I didn't want to stop seeing him but I wanted to see and hear and talk with others like myself, people, men and women who had gone through what I had. I was desperate to speak with them and hear from them. I wanted to comfort and be comforted by them. The brotherhood that exists within our pain is an intense and endless one. It is forged and fueled through the bonds of pain and hate and self-loathing. But I believe that by spending time speaking and hearing from others who shared my burden, I'd be able to feel a bond and an intimacy that I had so desperately craved all these years. There was such a need to be understood, believed, trusted, accepted, that I needed more than what Chad could provide. That is again the purpose of this book. I've tried to lay bare my deepest emotions within these pages. I've tried to tell, honestly tell my story so that you, the reader, can feel accepted and loved and understood. That's what we need most. To know we aren't alone, to have someone else who has felt that same touch and same invasion tell us that we are not broken. That is so important to us, it dwarfs all else. That is what this book attempts to do, and I hope that is the message you received loud and clear. 
being a victim and playing a victim are two very different things. Playing a victim is a pretense of justification. However, being the victim still carries the weight of those things, those actions taken against you, and clarifies the part you play in your victimization. I am a victim of sexual abuse. I carry the weight of the choices I have made because of that abuse, and while my mind may have betrayed me, it did so because I allowed it to do so. I chose to believe that when my mind first started showing signs of faulty wiring, I could fix it on my own. It wasn't true. And I must live each day with the consequences of that decision. The second goal of this book is to encourage any like me, those of you who have buried your abuse and are looking for an outlet and a way to release the feelings and memories you have, to find a way to do it as soon as you can. Do not fall prey to the trap I did. Do not avoid your pain and your anguish, believing that instead you can bury it and ignore it. It will come out of you. You will find that the more you bury it, the greater it will try to fight you. I read a book not too long ago about compulsion and the drives of the mind. In that book, the author spoke of psychology experiments called the White Bear Test. I challenge you now, as you're probably already doing, to think of a white bear. Now stop. Stop thinking of the white bear. Don't picture it. Don't think about it. Cast it from your mind entirely, as most of you are undoubtedly finding right now. If you're attempting this very exercise, you can't stop thinking of the bear at all. In fact, the harder you attempt to not think of the bear, the more you think of the bear. The reason is simple. Your mind, in an effort to distract yourself from a thought, must first think of what it is distracting itself from. This is the nature of remembering abuse. The more we attempt to not think of our abuse, the more we are forced to think of it. Unfortunately, the only way to truly stop thinking of our abuse, as the white bear test eventually taught psychologists, is to think about it. We must first think of the things we don't wish to think about in order to stop thinking of them. It sounds insane, but unfortunately it's the truth. My word of hope for you all, any of you who read this book, is that you seek the help now before it becomes too late. Do not allow your life to crash around you as mine has. I carry the weight of my abuse with me, and with that weight comes the knowledge that no one but me controlled the outcome of my abuse and its impact on my life. I can discuss what shaped me and what defined me and how it all changed and impacted me, but at the end of it all, my life was mine to live. The crossed wires and broken gears that were created within me as a child certainly caused the thoughts and feelings and actions that eventually damaged so much of my life, but those were still my wires and my gears, and I knew they were broken. It was my choice not to get them fixed. And lastly, this book is intended to be a response to a challenge posed to me once long ago by my creative writing professor in college. I once asked him if I could ever be a great writer, to which he responded, No. Your writing will never be more than stories you tell your children and grandchildren at bedtime. His words were either meant to let me down easily or to inspire me to fight back and prove him wrong. I hope it was the latter. And so, to you, Professor K, may my writing be an inspiration to you to challenge more students to try and be the best they can be. And finally, I recognize that for some who read this story, a question will emerge that will be frustrating as no clear answer is ever given. I hint time and time again with this book to the situation that unfolds before me today, the events that caused the writing of this book. I assure you, I left those events out of this tale intentionally. I hope that by doing so, the more important and crucial struggle of my life will rise up instead and take center stage. 
This is not a story of my struggle to regain the life I've lost in the last months, nor is it the telling of the events that I continue to fight to this day. I hoped by avoiding those details, I would allow those of you who read this to understand that those details do not serve the intention of this story. If you are a survivor of childhood abuse, then like myself, you still fight it today. One way or another, regardless of who or what you have become, there still exists a fight within you. Each of our fights is unique to us and each of us carries our own scars and they are no one else's. I am now proud of my scars because they are the marks of my battle that I have survived. And that was the story I wanted you to know. I wanted you to know it and I wanted you to be proud of me because I faced my demons.